Good morning. I speak to you in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I first want to thank your dean for the wonderful invitation to come and be with you. My wife and I uh, were at the 8 o'clock service, and, and Troy told us how very friendly the people of Phoenix are, and that is indeed true. I'll take that word back to where we come from. We think we're friendly lot in, in the desert, but you got us beat. It's wonderful. Thank you, Troy, for allowing us to be here. It was an ancient village where once upon a time you or I could have lived. Not many lived there, perhaps a handful of families, and everyone knew everyone else. They all knew about Moses, who had been sick in his head all his life. Sometimes his condition was so bad he'd fall into the fire. One day a healer came to town and he asked to see Moses. Then he, took a, he did a remarkable thing. People are still talking about it 2,000 years later. He took young Moses to one side, put his hands on him and prayed. And Moses was healed just like that. The townsfolk gathered round, marveled at what they saw, and then asked the healer to leave. In fact, they were so anxious for him to leave, they escorted him out of town. The healer was Jesus. You can read the whole story in the Gospels. So what was going on there? You've probably heard of prisoners who've been incarcerated so long they beg not to be released when their time comes. And in a strange sort of way, they've made friends with their prison and couldn't stand the thought of freedom in the same way the townsfolk couldn't stand the thought of changing things, including Moses. People not wanting change must have been one of Jesus' greatest frustrations. He found himself constantly challenged the status quo and the status quo refusing to change. And alas, people haven't changed much in the last 2,000 years. As they say, better the devil you know than the angel you don't. But how sad. Today the gospel talks about Jesus preaching a message wherever he went. We've come to call that message the good news. But what exactly was the good news, and if it was good news, why did it eventually get him killed? Some of the good news was about healing, healing of everything, bodies, minds, and souls. But amazingly, when he healed Moses in that village long ago, it caused such a fuss that family and friends wanted no part of it. In essence, they preferred Moses to remain sick. Jesus' message of healing was radical but simple and a little unbelievable, and it was that we can heal ourselves if we choose to change. Modern medicine barely has a clue about this and chooses to operate for the most part on the scientific principle that requires doctors and pharmaceuticals and technical gadgets for it to work. Jesus would probably sweep most of that aside and address what's going on inside that's causing the illness, our thoughts, our resentments, our anger, our stress. The opening prayer at every Eucharist speaks eloquently to this, and many of us probably miss what it says because it goes by so fast. 
That opening prayer asks God to cleanse the thoughts of our hearts. Remember hearing that a few minutes ago. The thoughts of our hearts isn't just poetic license, folks. Those words are making a profound statement. Cardiologists may not agree, but ancient wisdom has always believed that the heart has a function beyond pumping blood. It is also the seat of our innermost thoughts and emotions, and believe it or not, heart attacks are often the result of too many negative thoughts and emotions piling up on it. Scientifically, that may be hard to prove, but spiritually it is not. Yeats once wrote, We have fed the heart on fantasies, and the heart's grown brutal with the fair. Fantasies of both illusion and treachery, they can be brutal, and whether we know it or not, they do change the shape of the heart for better or worse. A hundred years ago, the medical profession acknowledged this and said quite clearly there was a direct correlation between cancer and stress. Today, we don't seem to hear the medical profession saying much about that, but we would hear it from Jesus, for it was part of his good news. Negative, hateful, and destructive thoughts can bring on illness just as certainly as the Ebola virus or any other illness. The good news that Jesus had to offer said that a robust faith and a positive attitude towards life can heal and produce life and health and strength. How are you doing on that score? There's a wonderful story told in Mark's Gospel about a Gentile foreigner who came to Jesus asking him to heal her little child. His first response was strange. He told the woman she wasn't a Jew and he wasn't called to deal with her. Whereupon she showed remarkable faith that he could still heal her little child. Then came the amazing part. Jesus didn't take one step towards her house, but he told her to go home because her great faith had healed her little child. And so it was. Now, why do you suppose we don't see things like that happening today? I used to think that the age of miracles was over and maybe the world needed them in the beginning just to jumpstart things, but that isn't so. The same spiritual principles of Jesus' good news are as relevant today and as possible as they were now as, as then. The reasons we don't see these things happening is because we don't really believe our inner thoughts can be that powerful and we have doubts about the so-called faith healing business. And doubts and uncertainty will always prevent spiritual healing from happening. The power of spirituality hasn't changed since Jesus' day. What has changed is that the world has become reliant on science and deaf to the things of the Spirit. Jesus' message was that the power to heal and make whole comes from the spiritual world. It did then and it does now. and We have the power to make that happen. The medical profession is a part of the answer, but by no means the only part for people of faith. We say Jesus was good for his day, but times have changed, so we choose to pay fortunes for doctors to figure it out. We choose to think that they have more authority than our weak faith to bring us to wholeness, and thereby we abdicate the power we were given and are uninvolved in our own healing. I think with tongue-in-cheek the Dalai Lama once observed that we moderns sacrifice our health to make money, 
and then spend our money to try to regain our health. And the spiritual potential for healing is entirely forgotten if it was ever considered. So, healing is a big part of the good news. Hope is another strong part of his good news. Hope to a downtrodden people who had lost all hope under the heel of the Roman occupation. They had become a hopeless lot who had forgotten that it was through hope they were born as a nation. Jesus was a constant cheerleader, exhorting those without hope to regain the anchor of hope for their lives. He reminded them of those great words of Isaiah just heard just this morning. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up on wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Great words of hope. But how does hope show itself in your life? You hope this year will be better than last, and don't we all? But that's basically a wish. We hope our loved ones will be happy, but that's more a combination of expectation and wishful thinking. Real hope is much greater than our common usage of the term. Real hope has to do with where we put our thoughts and expectations, but also what we would stake our lives upon. Bruce Filer tells a story in his book on Abraham about a humble shopkeeper in old Jerusalem during the days of the Intifada. Filer, who was visiting Jerusalem at the time, commented to the shopkeeper that the Palestinian boycott must make things pretty bad. The old man replied with the wisdom of a people who has specialized in hope for thousands of years. He said, the situation's not very good, but never say bad. You cannot say bad. If you get up in the morning and you can open your eyes, it's good. The old Jew went on to say that if you say something is good, it will get better. But bad will bring on more of the same. There's real wisdom in those simple words, and the power of positive thinking didn't begin with Norman Vincent Peale. It's been around a very long time. Jesus specialized in telling people about it. And that's a part of the good news he has for us still today. Be positive, be on the upside of every situation. Expect the best, look for the best, hope for the best, and you can make it happen. That's living with real hope, and it's an attitude of life. An attitude of life. My wife and I spent the week of Christmas in Rio de Janeiro. Can't say we're playing hooky hooky because I'm retired. Before we left, we had a number of naysayers who told us of the dangers that awaited us in that city. Crime, drug lords, kidnappings, you name it, suggesting we probably shouldn't go. We walked all over that city and never saw a single sign of those negative predictions. Now, that's not to say one should be a naive Pollyanna as you go through life. But it is saying that your attitude towards the world around you can influence what happens around you. But real hope goes even deeper than these kinds of anecdotes. Real hope is what we're ready to stake our lives upon. Dr. Viktor Frankl tells a story of what happened to him during the Second World War when the Nazis took him and his family to Auschwitz. He had all his possessions taken from him. He saw his wife and family taken to the gas chamber. Last of all, his only remaining manuscript was taken from him and burned. 
At that point, he felt all was lost and he lost all hope. But then he slowly came to realize there was one thing no one could take from him, and that was the ability to have hope and to make meaning out of life, whatever the situation. Some can do it, many do not. Hope and the ability to find meaning can never be taken from us unless we give it up in despair. With that insight, Frankl wrote a book that has become a classic in its field entitled Man's Search for Meaning. You may know it. He went on to develop a therapy that has subsequently helped millions who thought the light had gone out in their lives. Nelson Mandela, one of my heroes, discovered the same thing when he was locked up for life on Robben Island. With no end in sight, he realized that however cruel and evil his warders, they could never take from him the deepest part of him where meaning and hope and determination resided. And with that unshakable belief, he gave his fellow prisoners the strength to endure their ordeal. We all have that same ability to hang in there, if only with a tiny bit of hope, maybe no bigger than that mustard seed Jesus talked about, or a tiny piece of yeast. But from tiny seeds and smidgens of yeast, very great things can grow. And so it is with hope. Jesus was constantly reminding us of what we may have forgotten, that God is always on our side. He has given us more strength than we may know, more hope than we may ever use, and more life than we may ever live. His good news message was also about justice and liberation, about setting people free from their bondage whether it may be chains of injustice and oppression or habits and lifestyles that enslave us. Salvation is one of those churchy words you'll never hear outside the church. But ironically, that's where it is needed most. For salvation means simply saving us from our yuck, and God knows we all need saving from something. Some years ago, when saving the whales was popular in California, The New Yorker magazine had a cartoon with two whales spewing to each other off the coast. The caption read, but can they save themselves? Of course we can't, or we would. Today, in one way or another, the world is crying out to be saved from disease or tyranny or terrorism or poverty or oppression or you name it. People in every part of the world are crying out for salvation and liberation from something. And that's why justice and liberation were central to Jesus' good news. But it was also the part that always got him into trouble, because justice and liberation inevitably gets into the realm of politics. It did then, it does now. The late Archbishop of Recife had the same trouble. Like Pope Francis, he had a big heart for the poor, and he was always fond of saying, When I feed the poor, you call me a saint. But when I ask you why they are poor, you call me a communist. Folks don't want to hear the things like that. They just simply say, go on away. Don't mix politics and religion. But politics and religion must be mixed because they both deal with people. So justice and liberation may sound good in principle, but in practice we're not so sure. They can upset the status quo. We may just prefer to keep things quiet and like the people in the ancient village, 
just ask Jesus to move on down the road. In spite of our reluctance to accept the things the good news brought, whether it's healing and, or deliverance from our demons, or justice and liberation for our twisted world, down through the ages, his message has changed the world. But it hasn't changed enough. Today, America is still facing a weary old crisis we'd like to pretend doesn't exist any- anymore. And that's how blacks and whites get along together. Something white folks may have thought was all taken care of 50 or 60 years ago. But it wasn't. And we still have a gospel issue of justice and liberation awaiting us. And instead of facing that, how many of us just choose to remain silent and look the other way and hope things will get better? That's like asking Jesus to leave our village rather than upset things. Martin Luther King Jr. once said, In the end, we will remember not the words of our enemies, but the silence of our friends. Let's just be quiet and not cause a fuss. The Attorney General recently made the statement that violent protests are often counterproductive but sometimes necessary. We don't like to be reminded that the birth of American democracy can be traced back to violence in 1773 when an unruly mob in Boston destroys 92,000 pounds of British tea. But that certainly got everyone's attention and things started happening. 200 years later, King called violence the language of the unheard. It was true in Jesus' day, and it's still true in ours. Jesus never shied from speaking for the unheard and speaking truth to power. For the poor, it was always good news, but for those in power, it wasn't, because it challenged them to change an economic arrangement that produced haves and have-nots. And sad to tell, that economic arrangement hasn't changed much in 2,000 years. We have in our land a growing crisis of haves and have-nots facing us today. Justice and liberation. Rabbi Harold Friedman had a parable about how that happens. He tells a story about a man looking through a window and seeing people. He handed him a mirror and asked him what he saw then. He said, I see only myself. And then Friedman's observation was brilliant. He said, when we look through transparent glass, we see people. But as soon as a thin coat of silver is applied to make it a mirror, we see only ourselves. To expand the metaphor, as soon as wealth comes into the picture, everything changes. and We no longer see people. We see only ourselves. Jesus was saying one cannot pray and make offerings and come to communion and ignore the poor and the beggars at the gate. Those teeming poor are indeed a constant annoyance, always with us, as Jesus said, and don't we wish they'd go away? But they won't, and more radical still, he said that if you have more than you need, then you're taking from the poor, for your excess is taken from those who do not have enough. What a disturbing thought to upset our Sunday morning worship. But as someone once said, the good news is probably given to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. So, the grand question for each of us this morning might be, when is enough really enough? We keep shifting the 
goalposts on that, don't we? As soon as it looks like enough, well, it's probably not enough, and I need more. And so it goes. When is enough enough? So, my friends, I want to end on a slightly different note, one that has to do with the most common symbol of our faith, the cross. What does it represent to you? Is it just a nice piece of jewelry hung around the neck to politely, if vaguely, say you're a Christian? Or does it say much more? Is it for you a radical symbol that represents healing and wholeness and justice and liberation? Many messages may be found in that symbol we wear around our neck. But let me tell you a story that puts it into focus. It's about a young man who had been raised as a Christian but then strayed from home and had given up his religious upbringing in pursuit of becoming an Olympic diver. The only religious influence in his life came from his outspoken Christian roommate who was constantly badgering him about religion. The young diver never really paid much attention to his friend's sermons, though he'd heard them often enough. One night, the the diver went to the indoor pool at the college he attended. The lights were all off, but as the pool had a big skylight and the moon was bright, there was plenty of light to practice by. So the young man climbed up to the highest diving board, and as he turned his back to the pool and stood on the edge of the board with his arms extended, he saw his shadow on the wall. His body made the shape of a cross. And suddenly he was struck by that image, a symbol that once meant a great deal to him, healing and hope and justice. And instead of diving, he knelt down and he asked God to come back into his life. And as a young man stood, a maintenance man walked in and turned on the lights. The pool had been drained for repairs. The good news finally saved him. Will it save you?